All right, today we are going to be in Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, open up to Galatians 5. You got your iPhones or your iPads, open your app, right? If you don't, there's a Bible on the floor in front of you. Grab that. We want everybody to have an open Bible in front of them. That's an important part of the experience, okay? So we're going to Galatians chapter 5. That's page 974 in one of our Bibles. Now, if you don't have a Bible, um, feel free to take that one with you, okay? uh, Be glad to make that our gift to you. Um, But open up to Galatians chapter 5, page 974. This morning, we do get to jump back into our Galatians series. We spent last fall digging through the the first four chapters, and um, this morning, we're we're digging back in. We're going to be moving our way through the last two chapters. The last two chapters are super practical. Um, and I guarantee you'll be blessed as we dig through this stuff. If you're new, you can find all of our previous messages on our website. Uh, they're also on our podcast. So if you want to get caught back up, you absolutely can. All right, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I... Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The word of the Lord. (laughs) All right, we are at a critical junction in this letter. And I think you can tell Paul's a little riled up. Uh, He's a little passionate here, right? Um, He he is expressing his ideas uh, pretty powerfully. And you can hear both the urgency and the frustration that's coming out in in the tone of his pleading. You guys, Paul planted this church with his his own sweat, with his own tears, and even with some of his own blood. I mean, he, he had come to this place and loved these people and shared with them the good news of who Jesus was and what he did. And, and, and he saw this faith community born here, and he, and he nurtured them, and he helped them grow to a place of maturity before he moved on to help start other churches in, in other places, right? And in verse 2, man, you can hear like, like his, his father's heart, right? In verse 2, he's like, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's like he's taking his child's face in his hands. He's like, look at me. Look at my eyes. It's me. It's Paul. You know me. You know I love you. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. Anybody who's ever been a parent and has felt the danger of their child's heart slipping away from them, that somebody else was gaining a greater influence in their lives than you, you know the desperation that's in his voice. Look at me. Pay attention. 
it's me. Because you guys, man, this isn't the way. You are in great danger and you don't realize it. So he's like a good shepherd here, man. He cares for his flock. After he left, man, wolves snuck in. False teachers came in with with their unique brand of, of religion and they tried to rob these people of their joy, right? He's trying to rob them. Of their, their, they're trying to rob them of their freedom in the gospel. Bottom line is religion is always advice on how to live, right? I mean, that's what religion is. Religion is, this is how you fix yourself. This is how you make yourself right. This is how you make God love you or how you make you love yourself or how you make others love you, right? Religion is always advice on how to live. The gospel is news about what God has done so you could be made alive. It is fundamentally different. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. And these guys are coming in, and what they're saying is, look, that's great, you believe in Jesus. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus, man. You need to take your faith in Jesus, you need to add good works, man. You got these specific things you need to do. But God accepts us. And if you want to be accepted by God, you need to be accepted by us. And that means you need to become like us. Now, the... the, uh, Galatians were, were Gentile believers. It means they were non-Jewish in their heritage. And as such, they didn't go through the normal Jewish rituals of growing up. And these false teachers were coming in and basically saying, look, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to become a Jewish Christian. Jesus was Jewish. Christianity was born out of Judaism. So if you really want to be a varsity-level Christian, man, You need to become a proselyte. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the holy days. You need to to observe the feasts. You need to enculturate yourself to the history. Believe in Jesus. But if you really want to be okay, you need to add these things to your faith. And Paul is desperate to protect his children from this message, from these wolves. Paul's anguishing for his spiritual children. You can just hear it. And he's ready to fight. He's ready to fight to protect his kids. And in fact, that's what you hear in verse 12. You get to verse 12. He's like, man, I wish those who would unsettle you would even emasculate themselves. Some Bible versions really try to tone this down um, and, and kind of cloud what he's saying. But it's pretty obvious what he is he's saying. And, and I'm just, he's not being very polite. You know what I'm saying? The intent here is, is, is pretty clear. What he's saying is, look, these false teachers want your foreskins for their trophies. I wish they would just do the full Monty on themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like do the Lorena Bobbitt and just cut it off on themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like he's just, look, if they want that as a trophy, why don't they take their own? They've already proven themselves to be cowards, so I wish they would just cut off their manhood. It's blunt. It's brutal. It's not very polite. But it is the expression of a father's heart speaking out of desire to protect his children. So why is Paul so worked up? I mean, seriously, why is this such a big deal? See, here's the deal, you guys. The big deal is that when you add to the gospel, you distort the gospel. Anytime you add to the gospel... You distort the gospel, and a distorted gospel severs us 
from the blessing of, of the gospel. See, Paul uses that idea of cutting away or cutting off or severing throughout this passage. He's saying, look, they, they want to cut off your foreskins. That's what they're talking about. But what they really want to do is cut you off from grace. They want to cut you off from the blessing of the gospel to make you not disciples of Jesus, but disciples of them. Their heart's not to make you more like Jesus. Their heart is to make you more like them. And if you follow them, you will be cut off from the blessing of the gospel. Take a look at verses 2 through 4. It says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. See, the first thing that Paul wants to drive home is you guys need to see what's at stake here. You really need to see what's at stake. Religion, this, this religious behavior, this adding to the gospel, man, it's going to cut you off from grace. If you follow them, it's going to cut you off from grace. What is at stake here is, is not just a little bit of culture. What's at stake here is not just offending somebody or, or what's at stake here is the gospel itself. See, the word gospel, as we talked about, means good news. It's a word that literally means good news. It is a message of, of grace, right? That, that Jesus died the death you deserve to die. That he went to the cross in your place. He became your sin, your offense, and died the death you deserve to die. And then when he rose again, he did it not just for him, but for you. Right? So he took your sin and died in your place. And when he rose again, he offers you the blessing and benefit of new life, right? That you can be absolutely forgiven. That he was your substitute in judgment so that you could be his brother, his sister in life, in blessing to set you free, to set you free from guilt, to set you free from shame, to set you free from the treadmill of self-performance, of always trying to improve yourself and make yourself better so somehow you can, you can earn and deserve the approval and love of God or the, the approval and love of people around you. He sets you free and he offers this to you as a free gift. The benefit of his labor, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers it to you as a free gift to be accepted by faith. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace, undeserved favor, unmerited love, for by grace you have been saved through faith, saved from shame and guilt and the consequence of your sin. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, here's the thing, you guys. What God will give you as a gift, he will not let you earn as a wage. What God gives you as a gift, he will not let you earn as a wage. I grew up in uh, California, near the birthplace of the Hell's Angels. Nice boasting point there. Um, the Hell's Angels are an interesting bunch, right? They're right around in the big hogs. You guys know what I'm talking about. These guys, huge beards, tend lots of tattoos and lots of leather. Uh, pretty rough-looking group of guys, right? When I moved to Edwardsville, I had no idea that we also have bike gangs here. You know what I'm saying? But they don't wear leather. They wear spandex. Right? So when I first came to Edwardsville, I spent a lot of time out on the bike trails, walking my dogs and, and getting exercise. And, um, and these gangs of bikers um, were a regular 
occurrence, right? So I could see them coming as they would ride toward me, and, and they're almost always riding in groups of two to 12. And they tend to be riding next to each other where they can have conversations. And, and, uh, and some of these guys, you know, you can tell as they're riding toward you, they look up and they see you on the trail and, and they chart thinning out. You know what I'm saying? Like they squeeze in and they, and they start, some of them slow down and, because they recognize that, that, well, you need some space, right? And so when these guys are coming toward me, I, I tend to go over to the, the side of the trail to give them a little room. You know, I want to be polite. And so they go by and it's all cool. But every once in a while, there's going to be this group coming towards you. And you can tell they look up and they see you, but they don't move. You know what I'm saying? Like they just assume because they're higher and faster. They have a little more right to the trail than you do. I don't know what a situation like that does to your heart, but I know what it does to mine. And it's not pretty. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like what I do in that moment, when I see that guy, two of them, 12, doesn't matter. They're riding toward me and they're taking up the whole trail and they're not. I scoot to the center. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't go on their side, but I have a right. There's a reason there's lanes. You know what I'm saying? And my lane is my right, right? So I'm going to scoot. I'm going to be right on the center. And you can tell as these guys are riding towards you. They're looking down, looking up, talking, looking up, looking down, looking up. Last minute, you know, they got to swerve to get around you. You can hear them talking kind of real loudly as they go away. I'm sure they're apologizing because they were so rude. You know what I'm saying? But that's what it does to my heart. It's like there's a piece of me that says... I'll give something to you voluntarily, but I will not let you take it by force. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I'll be a pretty nice guy, and I'll give you almost anything, but if you try and take it, you're not going to get it. I'm going to admit there's quite a bit of sin in my heart related to that. that that's not a pure and holy impulse within me. Um, but here's the thing. God's the same way, and with Him it is pure and holy. With him, it's an expression of righteousness. You guys, take a look at that verse again. For by grace you've been saved, grace, through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, what he will give us as a gift, he will not let us earn as a wage. Because if we earn it, we deserve it. And if we deserve it, it is our boast. We can come before God and say to God, you owe me. And the reality is, no one can truthfully and righteously come before God and claim anything. We know our own hearts, don't we? We know the impulses of our, even our good deeds are often motivated by bad motives, if we're really honest about it. Who among us can come before God and say to God, you Oh, me. And yet that's what we try to do with our religious effort. In fact, all religion does this. It tries to make God our debtor. Basically, we come before God and we're like, look, I was good, so you owe me. I performed, so you owe me. I finally obeyed, so you owe me. I stopped doing that bad thing, so you owe me. It's this idea that somehow we can come before God and claim his blessings as a right instead of humbly receiving them as a gift. We try to put God in the place of a debtor. What God says is, look, I will give it to you as a gift, but I will not let you earn it as a wage. I would have to be a liar 
to allow you to do that because I don't grade on a sliding scale. I don't grade on a curve. It doesn't matter how you're doing compared to others. It doesn't matter if you think you're more moral than 10 other people. The measure of comparison are not the people around you or the people you used to be. The measure of of perfection is God himself. And as a result of that, if we ever come to that measurement, we all fail. If you approach God and demand what you deserve... You'll get it, and you won't like it. So Paul's first point, very simply, is this. If you accept circumcision and think somehow that you have earned the blessing of God, you've you've not only placed yourself under this one act, but you've actually shifted your entire relationship with God into one of employee and employer, debtor and one who holds a debt. And God will not be placed in the position of debtor. What he gives as a gift, he will not let you earn as a wage because you simply can't. So first of all, when you turn to religion, you cut yourself off from grace. Secondly, it cuts us off from hope. Um, Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. A lot of words to unpack here. Let's focus on this word righteousness. Righteousness is one of those kind of churchy words. Um, The only time we really hear about righteousness in the broader culture is when we're talking about self-righteousness. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll throw that at people. You're so self-righteous. And you don't even have to be religious to use that one, right? I mean, that's a very common term. But, But here's the thing. Righteousness, very simply, is that which makes you right. We all have righteousness, Right? We, we all have things that we look to to make us right. So, so the word may sound like an archaic Bible word, but, but everyone, honestly, whether you're religious or unreligious, no matter what your background, you're fighting for righteousness. You're fighting for something that will make you right in your own eyes and in the eyes of others. Because we all have a need to be right. It's all ultimately what makes you feel good about being you. It's often what makes you feel better than somebody else, right? What is that for you? We all have it. What are those areas of natural righteousness for you? Areas that you look at that you're like, man, this is, this is one area where I got it right. This is one area that makes me right. And, and you'll often know it because it tends to be the area you compare most to others. You'll look at it and be like, yeah, you kind of suck at this, but I don't right? Because the areas where we are righteous, or at least we think we are, are the areas that we are self-righteous. That's the way it works. So it could be recycling. It could be having a job and working hard. It could be having kids on the honor roll or kids that behave in public. It could be succeeding in business. It could be an artistic talent. It could be, um, I mean, it could be anything, anything. Gardening. You're like, don't make fun of that, man. That really is my righteousness. That's good, man. That's good for you. That's the thing. But we can get, you know what I'm saying? Like we can make anything like, like as soon as we realize, hey, I'm kind of good at that. We can be like, oh yeah, but I'm better than you too. You're like, we can turn anything into this area where we start making ourselves feel right and better than others. 
See, here's the thing. The false teachers were coming into Galatia and coming to these new believers and basically saying to them, you don't measure up because you're not like us. You're not circumcised. You weren't brought into the fold of Judaism. You, you are outside the blessing of this great religious heritage. You need to become like us. You need to join our club, the circumcision club, right? The holy day club, the, the religious behavior club, the religious language club, the religious entertainment club. You need to be like us if you really want to be a varsity level Christian. You guys, sadly, this is often the way it works in the church. I mean, it really is. I became a believer at 17, and um, I came out of a, I don't know, a pretty crazy background, definitely not churched, um, and, uh, and fairly rough. And I became a believer. I grew up in California, but I became a believer in, in this place called Dubuque, Iowa, which is like the, um, I don't know, if, if St. Louis is the heartland, it's the armpit of America. It's that place that, geographically, um, it's that place that's like, kind of smells like lots of cornfields and pigs. And anyway, um, but, but culturally, very, very different from where I grew up, especially in the 80s, okay, pre-internet. Uh, and so I showed up and, and culturally I was incredibly different. I became a believer and, and, and I would start going to church, right? And, and the, I remember the first time I went to church, I showed up, I was wearing jeans. They didn't have holes in them. They were like the nicest thing I owned. I grew up in California. I wear shorts all the time, right? And, and I'm there and, and, and a guy comes up and introduces himself and he's real friendly. And he's like, he's like, so are you from out of town? Yeah, I'm from California. He's like, so have your clothes not arrived yet? I'm like, no, this is what I got, man. Oh, that's great. Subtle pressure. See, the way it works is, is when people become believers... The group of believers will often put subtle pressures on that new believer. Subtle forms of shame. Subtle forms of acceptance or rejection. And all of those little things come together to basically say, if you really want to be accepted by us, you need to be like us. Right? In the church, this often has to do with clothing and attire because that's very visible. Behavior, language, where you go, what you do, what you eat or drink. And in certain circles, doctrines. What you believe or very specifically the shades of how you believe what you believe. And so very quietly, what we're doing is saying, if you really want to be in the inner circle, if you really want to be loved by God, you need to become like us because God loves us. Here's what you need to catch, you guys. This is evil. And it slowly chokes out the hope of the gospel in a believer's life. You guys, Christians do this in a thousand ways. You know, that, that whole wearing your Sunday best thing. When I first became a believer, I'd never heard that before in my life, but, but I definitely heard it after I became a believer, right? When you wear your Sunday best, and this is the way it was actually said to me, when you wear your Sunday best and you go out on Sunday morning and, and your neighbor is sleeping in and sleeping off that hangover and they look out and they see you wearing your Sunday best and going to church, man, you're a witness for Christ. You're being a testimony to your neighborhood. Oh, 
<laughs> All right, I don't need to know my neighbor. I don't need to love my neighbor. I just need to somehow condemn them because I'm doing what they're not. Huh? You need to learn the holy vocabulary. It'd be really nice when you became a believer if somebody just gave you a list of the holy vocabulary. You know what I'm saying? Like, these are the words you can say, and these are the words that are off limits. That, that's not the way it works. And, and somebody who came from my background, you kind of have to stumble your way through this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just talking like I always talk, and suddenly everything grows quiet. And people give you that weird look, and you're like, wait a minute. I think that word must be on the no-no list. Because I'm outside the circle right now. You know what I'm saying? And so what do you do? You start adjusting your vocabulary. Subtle pressure, subtle shame, subtle... So you stumble along and you figure it out. Be like us, think like us, look like us, act like us. What happens? What ends up happening, you guys, is that your hope shifts. And your hope is no longer rooted truly in the freedom of grace. Your hope shifts toward the acceptance of people. Your hope shifts from celebrating the radical freedom of the love of God to celebrating your acceptance in an inner circle. You start modifying the way you look. You start modifying what you say or what you think. You start doing it to get more accepted. And in the process, you start hiding areas where you don't measure up because you don't. But in this new group, they're not really that concerned about that. What they really want to see is where you do fit in. And so you start hiding the things that don't fit. You start pretending to be what you're not. You start acting like a Christian instead of fighting to live as a Christian. This is death. It is the loss of genuine hope. Because I am not saying, and I'll be very, very clear. In verse 5, it says that the Spirit gives us faith to wait on the hope of righteousness. Think about that phrase for a minute, right? Let's take a look at that. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There is something about our experience of grace, something about our faith in Christ that leads us to recognize, I can't fix myself. I can't do it. I was hopeless to save myself. I am hopeless to change myself. And so it puts me in a position where I have to wait. Being empowered by the Spirit, enlivening my faith, but I have to wait for the hope of righteousness. Jesus declared me right when I believed in Him. I have the full benefit of salvation. He's in the process of making me right. He's changing me, but that takes time. What Paul is saying is, look, man, our posture is not those who fix themselves. That's what religion does. Religion comes in and says, that's great, you believe in Jesus. Now take these steps and fix yourself. Take these steps and make yourself acceptable to us. Make yourself less rough around the edges. Start hiding your weaknesses. 
There is something radically freeing about the hope of the gospel because it allows us to be broken and a mess and yet fully accepted and loved. And it frees us to this hope that it's God's work in us, not our work for God. That ultimately the outworking of grace is not dependent on me. It is founded on him. We often talk about uh, hope as if it were this really vague thing. You know, you'll talk about somebody like, well, all they have left is hope. But here's the thing. Hope is always as certain as the thing we put our hope in. Hope is always as certain as the thing that we put our hope in. And when we put our hope in the work of Christ, it is absolutely certain. It is not a vague anticipation that maybe God will change me. Maybe God will set me free. This is the God who put my sin on Christ when he died and raised Jesus from the dead. That same God will make me right, will set me free, will change my heart. And when I am rooted in grace, it allows me to wait as God changes me. It's one of the hardest things to learn in the Christian life is to live knowing that there is a brokenness within you that you cannot fix and you are completely dependent on God to fix and yet to do it with joy. Because we wait in the hope of righteousness, the anticipation of the change. Because Jesus is committed to freeing me, to changing me, to loving me. That is so fundamentally different than the experience of religion. I am waiting eagerly, hopefully, for Jesus to change me, to free me. See, the difference is religion leads you ultimately to pride that says work for it and earn it and hide it when you don't make it. The gospel says it's a gift. It's a gift. So rejoice in it, celebrate in it, and wait for the fullness of it. Here's the thing. You have to have humility to wait like that. A humility that says, I don't have it all together and I don't have to. I don't have to impress you. I'm free. And that very humility that comes from waiting becomes one of the primary tools that God uses to set us free. Do you understand how religion comes in and cuts off the very life source of genuine transformation? As you're trying to fix yourself, you're undercutting the work of grace in your life that ultimately will and and definitely can fix you. So religion cuts you off from grace and it cuts you off from genuine hope. And Paul says that ultimately it will cut you off from the real fruit of the gospel, love. Verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. See, the religious guys came in and said, that's good that you have faith in Jesus. That's the good starting point. But it's circumcision that really matters. You need to join the club, man. And once you join the club, then you're on the A game. Then you're on your way to actually getting this thing together. You're on your way to measuring up. But what's the fruit of that behavior? What is the outcome of, of, of giving in to that kind of pressure? Pride. And ironically, pride in what doesn't matter. (laughs) 
Paul's like, circumcision doesn't mean anything. If you want to do it, go ahead. If you don't want to do it, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Religion leads us to take pride in the stupidest things. Things that ultimately have no consequence or power. You end up trying desperately to make something really, really important that really isn't. You know, when I was in middle school, the Rubik's Cube came out and it was all the rage. It's kind of a new thing. Like, like I'm seeing young people play with them again, so it's kind of cool they're coming back. Um, I got really good at solving these things. Like, my record was 47 seconds. Isn't that funny that I still remember that? 47 seconds, right? Like, I carried this thing around with me all the time. I had two of them. And I would work them so that they were nice and loose. Like the little cubes were almost falling off so I could just fly. I had one in each. I wore my jacket to school. I had one in each pocket. I'm not even joking. Not even joking. I had, I had one in each pocket. And I was so fast. One time the principal even took me out of class and let me go to other classes to demonstrate my Rubik's Cube solving ability. Man, I was all that. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm walking around. I got the two-fisted Rubik's Cube and I'm the fastest one in the school. And I would see some kid playing with it. And I'm like, man, you are pitiful. Uh-huh. what's your record? Not as good as mine. 47 seconds. So much pride, right? Felt superior to everybody else. And then you know what happened? The Rubik's Cube craze passed. And it, I didn't realize it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm still walking around with a Rubik's Cube in my jacket. Be like, hey, look at this. And they're like, so what? Pretty soon you're like, oh, come on, man. This used to impress you. And then pretty soon you're like, oh, yeah, it's not impressive anymore. And then after a while, it's just downright nerdy. And they're like, aren't you that Rubik's Cube guy? No, that wasn't me. <laughs> that wasn't me. You know what I'm saying? Like, taking pride in what honestly is just the silliest thing, making us, I mean, we get so big headed. I'm so good at this. That makes me so great. And you're not. And, 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 we choose such arbitrary, worthless things. You guys, when we do this religion, with religion, we get really good at doing things that just don't matter. We end up with, with people who are really, really good at doing the Christian thing. Really, really good at looking Christian. But they're not living in the outpouring of the blessing of the gospel. They're not living in the radical outpouring of grace. They say all the right words. They're always at church, right? I'm at church every time the doors are open. Every activity. They're always going through the motions. They're always beating themselves up when they don't measure up and getting prideful when they do. And all they're doing is increasing their experience of futility. Because they're pretending to have what they're not experiencing. It's empty. You know why? Because they're not filled with love. They're filled with pride. And pride is the exact opposite of love. The exact opposite of love is not hate. The exact opposite of love is pride. Because pride is all about self-love, self-focus, self-centered. Love is about the other about giving and generosity, 
affection, time, nurturing, acceptance. Because love finds its power in the giving and receiving. You guys, the outworking of the gospel is so much better. So much better. It is faith working through love. It is our faith in God, right? Faith is, is ultimately trusting in God and resting in His righteousness. We're called to faith, right? To, to believe that Jesus is who He said He is and that He did what He said He did, that He was my substitute in judgment, that He rose again a new life in my place. And I trust in that. I rest in that. He did for me what I could not do for myself. And it puts us in a position to receive grace because I can only receive that as a gift. I can't earn it. I can't claim it. And so I stand. Scripture says that I actually stand as a believer in Christ. I stand in grace, which is an amazing phrase. It means I get to stand in the very presence of the holy God. Stand. Like, like not on my face, not humiliated, not afraid of judgment, but stand in the very presence of God covered with grace. His unconditional, unending acceptance and love. I stand in grace. And in that position of grace, it fills me with hope, hope of a future, hope of transformation, hope of God's blessing, hope of the outpouring and the further outpouring of his love in spite of my flaws, in spite of my deficiencies, even though I can't fix myself because he's committed to fixing me. And that kind of radical hope frees me to love. It releases my heart to generosity with people who are like me and people who aren't. It frees me to stop competing with other believers and actually start experiencing community with other believers. It frees me from making those who disagree with me, those who aren't like me, into enemies. It frees me from dehumanizing people that are different from me politically or socially, religiously, racially. I can see them and I can fight to understand them from a place of humility instead of judge them from a place of pride. You know why? Because humility frees you from having to defend anything. There's nothing there to be threatened when you have nothing there to defend. When you realize that we are all charity cases on the grace of God, holy cow, what freedom comes with that? To interact with people and actually love people instead of competing with them, measuring ourselves with them, trying to get one leg up on them or to demonize or make them enemies because they're threatening somehow to our kingdom, our pride, our religion. Listen to me. The gospel is the path to freedom, to joy, and to true love. And that's what Paul is saying. You guys, you don't understand the cost of what you're playing with here. Don't go there. Don't sell out. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, to pride, to performance, to measuring up, to comparing yourselves with others. Don't do it. Root yourself in grace. Fill your eyes with hope. And free your heart to love. It's so much better. You guys, as we move into our time of response, I want to do something with you that I, that I did a couple weeks ago. Um, some of you let me know that it was actually weird. I'm okay with that. Um, others of you said that you were blessed by it, and that's awesome. But I'm, I'm just going to say a blessing over you as we come to the end of this message.
And this is the way it works. This is something that, that I picked up when I was in, in overseas, um, kind of immersing for a, a short time in another culture. Every, after every meal, they would utter a blessing. And they would cup their hands like this. And, and it was very powerful to me. They, I didn't even understand what they were saying. So I just filled it in with my own words, which was kind of cool. Um, but they would cup their hands after a meal, and, and they would utter a blessing, and then they would wash it over them. It's, it's a way of claiming the blessing and saying it is mine. It's a way of entering into it. So I'm going to encourage you, if you are comfortable enough and free enough, I want to give you this blessing. I want you to cup your hands. I don't want you to lose a single drop of it, and I want you to wash it over you. If you're not comfortable doing that, that's fine. If, if you're just checking the whole Christianity thing out, you're not even sure you're a believer, God bless you. You don't have to do this. I free you. You don't have to be weird with us, okay? But, but if it's a blessing to you, awesome, okay? And so I'm going to put this verse on the, on the screen, and I really just want you to bow your heads so you're not looking at others. You're not distracted. Just cup your hands in your lap, and let me, let me speak this over you. And when I get to the end, I'll say all God's people said, and we will all say amen together. The word amen means let it be or it is true. So it is your way of, of saying this is true for me. This is my blessing. Okay? So let me read this to you. It, it comes from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that you have no one to impress and nothing to prove. Jesus took your condemnation in your place. God is not disappointed in you. God is not waiting for you to get your act together. God is not waiting for you to start performing better because his vision is filled with his son and you are clothed in his grace. If you are a believer in Christ, this is your birthright. This is your blessing. And all God's people said, amen.